Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Robert Greenfield, right here in Michigan. It is really good to meet you in person. Thanks, Rick. You've been traveling a lot. You left Australia some months ago? Uh, it's, now it's been about a, a month, um, uh, a five-month journey. So, yeah, we're still early in the piece. But my, my goal on this uh, kind of global trip is to be in as many places as I can, to observe what I can, to try to uh, solidify and fill in some pieces that you cannot when you're far away uh, in Australia and where I live in Perth is very far away. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think we share is that the reporting industry has, you know, become just untrustworthy. You know, we've recently had a, you know, a medicine that was reported that, oh, pe- hundreds of people were using it. It's an animal medicine. And it's like, okay, then 48 hours later, well, it's a human and a, and a animal medicine. And then the entire story by Rolling Stone was completely fabricated. Yet it had gone around the world with Associated Press, NPR, MSNBC, and hundreds of other outlets. And it, it had finds a willing audience because the division that we're being fed or crammed down our throats on social media is pick a side, attack the other side, they're less than human. Sometimes when people on the right get mad at me, they call me a libtard. And uh, the people on the left, they get mad at me and they say, well, you're being mean because I'm not following all the talking points. May I say, on my, on my side, I'm called uh, a fascist by one side <laughs> and I'm called a racist by the other side. And the more that you try to explain your position, they double down. Oh, This is, the to me, the, the extremities here are controlling the narrative. And one of the things and the reason why I'm here today is I'm really tired of the extremes controlling the narrative, which I think you were talking about earlier with the, uh, you know, Facebook or social media can actually be uh, a way to bring people together. It's not always on the extremes. Well, look, and I think that's a a great point. So the way you and I met, didn't know each other uh, through social media back when you did what it was possible to discuss politics, policy, and issues of the day on Facebook, that you and I had some conversations, often on the opposite point, uh, viewpoints, mm. coming from different perspectives. But I, I, I want to say always respectful. You know, we might have thrown in a sarcastic line here and there, as I'm prone to do. But we de- developed a respect for each other. And then you, you were kind enough to come on our show and talk about China a couple of times. And you came on pre-election to talk about what, like the Democrat side and where we had a staunch Republican. And you've taken more of your work off of Facebook, as I have. You've gone to Quora, and I'm, of course, doing the podcast and YouTube TV. But we've developed a respect and a friendship, I believe, that's important to me based on social media. Well, who knew? One, one of the things, uh, I agree completely, uh, one of the things that I I believe that the left doesn't get, and I think that the right extremists don't get, is that actually in business, in especially in international business, you don't succeed unless you are uh, polite. You've got to be, yes, you can be firm, but you have to see the other person's side. Absolutely. So I have spent a career, 40 plus years in Asia, 
where I always have to understand the Chinese side. I have to understand the India side. I have to understand, you know, the Filipinos, whoever it is, right? So when I talked or saw with you on uh, uh, social media, one of the things I liked was it was very clear that, you know, you have a strong business background. Mm -hmm. And I think that people that have strong business backgrounds but are willing to engage because mostly the business guys, they say, I don't want to touch that stuff, right? But you're willing to engage. I, I found that actually a natural kind of inflection point for me to be able to, to meet together without talking about business. Instead, we approached it as two, I felt like two kind of executives who are talking about subjects that are important to them, but also realize you don't get anything by going off the rails. Right, right, right. You have, and in my consulting world, we were only successful if we knitted all the disparate viewpoints and agendas together into a unified outcome. And, and as I looked at the political system, we were going in exactly the opposite direction, that mm-hmm. it was more about defeat the other guy versus let's solve healthcare. Yeah. It was let's disparage the other guy versus let's solve firearms. It was have a set of talking points, whether they're truthful or not, versus dealing with how do we educate the next generation and so forth. And I think that we may be losing that more and more people, I think, are falling into the group think that they're picking the side. They've got their talking points and they just want to relax and let that go. I don't see how that's going to succeed for us as a human race. I don't see how it's going to succeed for us as a country, as the United States. Well, here's here's my view, because I have um, close relatives, a son in the Netherlands, um, daughter who was in Copenhagen. We discussed that. Um, Australia, USA, people in different places. My, my view is this, that uh, there is a strong global middle. That middle is either middle right and usually, as we've discussed before, that middle right is kind of more on, let's say, the business side. The middle left is more on, let's say, the social uh, programs side. But the middle right is not against the social programs on the middle left. And the middle left is not against people making money because they know people got to make money to be able to pay for all this stuff. So in my view, what's not being reached right now globally, and this is critical, and again, why I'm very happy to sit down with you again and honored to be with you today and also Brian. Um, what I, my view is this, is that, and why am I here, is that nobody understands or is listening to the middle right in the middle left, which is probably 70% of the global people. We're not just talking USA, we're talking in Europe, we're talking in China, we're talking, that's where the, where people are. And the extremes on both sides, which then get pandered to by, let's say, kind of a militaristic side on the China side and the US side, oh, we're going to fight. I can tell you every day there's questions of, on Quora, which are, when is the US and, and uh, China or Australia going to war? Mm-hmm. Okay. And people actually double down and talk about annihilating each other. Okay. And then on the left, we have, if we don't actually get our 3.5 trillion, you know, the world is going to end. And well, the world didn't end before. It's not going to end tomorrow if you don't get your 3.5 trillion. And I'm not so sure that that 3.5 trillion is even necessary or even what the hell's in there. The key point here for me is that middle ground is where people get up every day, they go to work, they have great pride in their community, they do their flowers, they do their gardens, they do their, 
you know, getting out and meeting with each other, that is not being heard. And the the social media is such that it's it actually people are eliminating each other. So the right wing guys say, I don't want to have any of those Facebook guys as my friends anymore. The left wing guys, I don't want to have those guys as my Facebook friends anymore. You are one of the few people, honestly, you've hung in there, Rich, on uh, Facebook in particular, and you are constantly calling for like a truce. You're constantly calling for, well, yes, maybe you're center right, but you're not like actually saying, well, Biden should go because of the 25th Amendment. That doesn't come up with you. No. you you'll come up with something like, I don't believe that Afghanistan was handled very well. What do you guys think? Well, obviously, you know, you're hoping to get some dialogue going. Sometimes you do. And you get some great posts on that way. I don't have that kind of patience. Uh, in the left, to be honest, in some ways, at least the left that I'm with, they're not very patient either, okay? So I believe that social media is a great way, but I'm not so sure it's Facebook. Well, I, I think agree, that I your YouTube you. and other things are, are better. Uh, well, you, you covered a lot there. And, and the, the big takeaway for me in, in listening to you is that, first of all, that person that's going about their life, taking care of their home, raising their family, tending their garden, engaging in their hobbies, that doesn't mind people making money, that also wants to support the less fortunate. Um, I, I agree with you, that's the vast majority. But that individual can't go home at night and turn on a news program yeah. and get actual news anymore. And that Things are going around the world without the benefit of actual reporting and fact-checking. And, and one of the things that I, I've tried to do is not engage in hot takes. Uh, by way of example, the recent legislation in Texas, which uh, I was encouraged to do a show. Abortion-related. Abortion-related. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to do a hot take because during the hot takes, there's just a lot of yelling. This is also that the medicine uh, it was portrayed as a veterinarian medicine. Well, it turns out, oh, it really is prescribed in a human dosage. Oh, by the way, the things about hundreds of people being overdosed on it, just not true, but it went around the world. The Associated Press, National Public Radio, MSNBC, because people liked the story because it made the other look stupid. And we have real things to deal with in, today in the country. And I always hope my president does great, okay? Mm -hmm. I hope Joe Biden becomes the most successful president we've ever had, mm -hmm. all right? And I, I hope that for Donald Trump, and I hoped it for Barack Obama and George Bush and all the presidents in my lifetime, because we need them to do well. And we don't want to have a society where our president and our Congress can't behave better. But I think that's the box we're putting them in by saying you must adhere to this set of talking points or this doctrine, or you're out. Well, as you know, um, uh, first of all, on your point about the news, I, I actually talk to people all the time, and when they talk to me about the news, I, I always say, I don't know what the news is anymore. I, mm -hmm. I honestly don't know what is news or what is not news. Uh, if you watch nightly news, it's like the 15-minute sensationalist thing on ABC, and then after that, it's advertisements, and I don't see much news. If you watch something on, you know, uh, on Fox News, it's kind of a talky, showy thing with mm -hmm. a, a lot of, you know, I don't want to call it propaganda, but let's just say spin. I give you the, that it's entertaining. 
more entertaining than Chris Cuomo, who's got to hide these days. Yeah, as we well, all know. well, Chris's <laughs> colleague is Jeffrey Tubin, and he was entertaining, and now he's back to work. <laughs> but my point on this was, uh, when people ask me, "What do you watch for news?" Honestly, the only program I can watch, which is very formulaic but not too bad, is PBS. I actually watch PBS News, uh, and I like uh, again, it's formulaic. Uh, again, it's a bit tilted, but they try to, uh, they'll have a Ron Johnson on there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they'll have Lindsey Graham. They'll have, you know, it's not all uh, left-wing kind of guys. But it's very difficult uh, to get uh, uh, real, in my view, real news. And if you want to talk about in-depth analysis, that's even a, a bigger one. Yeah, because everyone's got their agenda. Right, and, and, and that's where we don't discuss what the issue is and how to solve no. it and then and, and, what I've learned in doing computer systems and doing consulting, you first have to define what is the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll take firearms as an example. The issue is not let's eliminate firearms. The issue is we need to keep firearms out of the hands of the people that shouldn't have it. And it's, it's really an achievable thing if you didn't have one side saying let's take away 300 million firearms and the other side saying, hey, you know, we're not even going to make you qualify at all and you can walk around with lethal weapon in your pocket. All right. Which is which is where we're at today, regrettably. Now, you've got a perspective, though, beyond the United States, which I love the fact you've been in Europe. You're going back to Europe. Yeah. You've done a lot of business in Asia yeah. and you live in Australia. Yeah. Can we, let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in Europe right now, because you're very current on this. Yeah. And and, I, and you've been in Hungary, and where are some of the other places you've been recently? Uh, Hungary, Netherlands, France. Um, those are the primary ones. We'll be going back. I'm going to Israel uh, next month. Nice. So I will, uh, it's kind of a Holy Lands thing, but I will be doing my Ask the Israelis What's Going On. <laughs> How's that third fiber, Pfizer jab going, you know, kind of thing. Here's the, in my view, and I don't, uh, I'm starting, by the way, a new web space. I've got one that's called The Future of America. Uh, Then I did Future of Australia. I'm starting The Future of Europe, okay? I believe that we should look, uh, yes, at the past, but I believe we need to start looking more at the future. So I'm very much not a futurist, but I'm very much a, what are we doing here to make a better future for ourselves, our kids, uh, those kinds of things. So anyway, Europe. Europe right now is actually getting its act together after the Brexit push away and AstraZeneca did not work. Okay, blood clots, whatever, some politics thrown in there. So they switched over to Pfizer. And Pfizer, as you know, is BioNTech, which is a German uh, partnership that Mm -hmm. they have. So they went from like no availability to what some places are up to 70 percent now uh, with vaccination. UK is up to 95 or 90, as you know, in certain population groups. So everybody's getting vaccinated. So that's the number one thing you need to know about Europe. Everybody is moving around. Everybody is actually living their life and everybody is going according to the minimalist rules, such as face masks. Everybody, New York City, by the way, is also doing it. You guys even have your vaccination cards here. Everybody's got the vaccine passport. So the way that to combat the pandemic is clearly <clears throat> herd immunity. There is some anti-vax, but there's not. It's not uh, heavy. Uh, it's not going to stop them from getting close to uh, herd immunity. 
so that people can get back to living their lives. They don't want to have, unlike Australia, by the way, which is still caught in the cycle, um, they don't want to stop. So in that sense, Europe is moving forward. Um, but, you know. Well, I'm going to ask you about yeah, that a little bit. So I've seen reports that in France that there are demonstrations against social lockdowns. Yeah. And also, are, are people like, show me your papers, let's see your, your vaccine passport? Yeah. Well, again, even in New York, you can't get into a restaurant now without it. Okay. So it's it's here. It's the, the global reality is because of the anti-vaxxers are, are no one is going to force you to get vaccinated except maybe some employers and some government if you work for the government. Well, right? well, the hospitals have long insisted that their employees get a flu shot, right? Because they're yeah. in a germ ridden env- environment and there there's exceptions there where they had to be had to have masks on. So I, I can kind of see it there, although the way I look at the vaccine, just like any other personal medical decision, it's risk reward that people are going to get antibodies one way or the other. Behind door number one, they're going to get a vaccine and they're going to get antibodies with a perhaps 90, 95 percent chance of success. Door number two <laughs> is you're going to get the disease and you're going to generate antibodies. And those antibodies, as of today, there is no diminution of their effectiveness in protecting. But door number the, three, the Russian roulette, when you take that course of getting a natural infection, the you don't know what the virus is going to do to your body. But this is when you look at some of the places that have done rather well. Denmark, my understanding, is basically open, never shut down schools, and they're kind of back to normal. Sweden, and yet some of the places that locked down heavy, got no natural immunity, and they're having major problems. The, I think, uh, uh, Rich, here's my view. First of all, by the way, door number three, um, a very good friend, former UAW member, died two days ago here in suburban Detroit. Oh, so friend of my, and you know, he was 60-some years old, and anti-vaxxer. And he, while he was getting out of the hospital last week, and then two days later, he's gone. And he was doing the, I wish I got would have gotten the vac- vaccine. Okay. Sure. And the he was quote unquote healthy. He was not D2 or diabetes 2 or any of this other. Not diabetes, obese. Not obese, all that stuff. So I think that the uh, what everyone's being scared into is uh, the variants. The variants are not the original alpha, the delta, and who knows what the next variant is. And I think people are actually responding to that. I mean, you can speak to that uh, much better than I can. What do you think? First of all, the healthcare system in the United States is handling things pretty well, that people are getting sick. It is largely people that are unvaccinated. And those that are vaccinated, if the thing, do the math. If you have 100 million people and you have 95% effectiveness, that means you've got 5 million people that it's ineffective for. So there are going to be people that continue to get infected. I think the consensus is saying now that it's going to be endemic. It's going to be with us like a flu and we'll be able to handle it. Some of the we've talked about the reporting. They said, well, hospitals are at capacity. What they leave out is that the capacity comes down in certain places seasonally. That in certain Sunbelt areas, they'll close entire wings of hospitals because all the snowbirds go north. So you get... Percentage-wise, it's, it's a higher occupancy. The other phenomena is that it is getting into children at younger and younger ages. The good news is that most of the time the kids get through the infection in a 
matter of days with what we would term mild symptoms. And I'm so sorry about losing your friend. But again, the decision I made to, to take the vaccine was largely because of my age. I had friends of my age that were down, healthy, very vigorous people, down sicker than they've ever been for 10, 12 days. I'm going to speak to the camera now. Dear camera, I'd like to say this to you. When you're over 60, we do not have the same immune system as younger people. So this is not a political decision. It's not vax, anti-vax. It's an immune uh, response. And we don't, we're not as healthy. I I got a cold recently, went to Sydney, came back to uh, Perth. Five weeks I had a cold. I could not shake it. I was shocked that I could not shake this cold. And, you know, coughing this, that, and the other things. And it's the reality. I went to my doctor. What's wrong? He goes, there's nothing wrong. You're 70 years old. It sounds to me like, uh, uh, you know, chronic gravity syndrome. You've been dealing with gravity for <laughs> 70 years. And it wears you out. It's, but people don't, you know, if you just basically think about that, why do people get cancers? Why do people get this? A lot of it is their immune system can no, is not as robust as when you're right. younger. And there is nothing that you can do about it. All those health guys take this vitamin, that vitamin. Maybe it helps marginally. But at the end of the day, the Delta variant is powerful. And that, to me, is the real message here, uh, which was what I was asking you about. Because anecdotally, because I don't get, you know, see the numbers. But anecdotally, I do see the numbers going up from like the half million up to about a million a day. And do you think that we will get to herd immunity because of kind of this fear factor that people finally get it? Or what do you think? Well, I, and I said this at the beginning of this, and I have, I spent a lot of time looking at this data and I've got a background in the data and a pretty good network. Okay. And I am not a scientist, nor am I a clinician or a physician or a researcher. Okay. So all the disclaimers. Yeah, yes. no, well, nobody, I mean, the thing is people should listen to people that actually are those yeah. things that are actually qualified. So with that as a qualification, it appears to me, that this virus is impervious to just about everything. Mm. It's impervious to masking, social distancing, just about mm. everything that mm. we've tried. We can't get ahead of the curve. I think that eventually it will roll through the population and we will see various strains of it. But I, I don't think it's going to be the public health calamity that we experienced before mm. the health system, you know, again, is able to treat it. And we need to look at it as a part of public health, not the public health thing. So what we've done to kids and what we've done to spur uh, mental health crises, mm. what we've done to rob... An undiscussed area, by the way. Oh, not, or not, not really... We're not clinically treating, in my view. The mental health aspect of we're not we're not we need to look at, at public health broadly mm. and and we've kind of tilted it too far to like the notion that we're going to eradicate COVID. I think is probably not a great goal because I don't know that it's achievable. I don't think it is. It, it's I think we need to understand that there are things we can do. We take care of our health better. Yes, you know we can get outside. You know, there's been almost no transmission outdoors, yeah. period. We know that it transmits on aerosols. We, we know that it transmits based on saturation. Yeah. And so that if you're indoors in a poorly ventilated restaurant and you go out five nights a week, you've got a higher chance of getting it. So um, I want to mention one thing here about 
very positive about the United States. And then maybe uh, you ask me, because uh, in the view of time here, I want to talk about Australia and their response. Is that okay? I would love to, because let me tell you what I'm here. I have a friend who's got a brother in New Zealand saying, hey, he can't even talk to his neighbors. Yeah. And we're hearing reports out of Australia that the police are keeping people in a certain boundary yeah. and that there's an app that you can be randomly called and you have to take a geolocatable photo of yeah. yourself to prove that you're where you're supposed to be or you can be arrested. Yeah. So, by the way, first of all, uh, is any of that true? Well, geolocated apps um, to you got to be in a certain area. Absolutely. That's true. But that's also true in China. That's true in New Zealand. That's true in Singapore. That's true in a lot of places. So geolocated, uh, it's true in Hungary, okay, kind of thing. Geolocated apps, if you are in an uh, area of risk, right, that's in, experiencing a lockdown, they're trying to do that as opposed to lock down the whole country. So the idea is we got an outbreak. Uh, essentially, everybody's got on a geolocated app in, let's say, that 500,000 person uh, geo. You got to pretty much gut it out, uh, keep getting your shots right towards, uh, you know, va- vaccination shots. But there's you got to sit there for sometimes two, four, six weeks uh, without going very far. You're not supposed to go out of your area either, because obviously their theory is you're carrying the virus with you out of the area. So the geolocated apps um you can like or dislike them. You can call a big brother, people, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, surveillance. But the reality is they're trying to not make this, you know, a big heavy solution that everybody in the whole state, which is the state of New South Wales, as an example, which is Sydney, is probably bigger than almost any state except Alaska. Okay. So, well, you know, you, if you can't even go, you know, can't go anywhere. I'd like to mention this. Well, uh, let, me, let me say something about that, that. My sense is that even with those kind of things, it doesn't stop this virus. It no. moves, it transmits. No. And then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about public health, public policy. And I, I've talked on my show about leadership. Mm. And one of the things that we've seen that causes people to go, what? We have people that are elected just this past weekend. Oh, here's all of our photos from our indoor wedding. No mask while their Twitter accounts are telling everybody, stay in your house and, and stay masked up. Yeah. We had a governor in the state of Michigan that told people, don't go visit your elderly relatives, don't go to Florida, who went to Florida, sent her kids to Florida to visit her dad. And, and so when people look at what they're getting in leadership, I think it's a natural thing to say, wait a minute, if it's as serious as you're portraying, why aren't you following those rules? Well, there's two answers to that, but I'm going to answer something we didn't answer yet, but we almost got to, which is this. Um, there is a lot of global studies now about different societies, okay? The U.S., on the scale of things, is the most individualistic society in the world. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways people have measured this, but there's no doubt, no way around it. Sounds right to me. So the good news about that is the U.S. is also the most innovative society in the world. It's no uh, accident that these vaccines were produced uh, under U.S. uh, pharmaceuticals, auspices, Trump administration putting some money behind it, Biden administration doing the rollout, 
incredibly effective. Who can forget those days when the truck started rolling out of what it was Benton Harbor or wherever they were. Mm -hmm. I was so proud that they were coming out of Michigan and they were UPS. They were Amazon. I don't care. There was everybody trucking in America. We're all lined up. Take those Pfizer's out. It's like the U.S. when they apply themselves, there is nobody that can solve a problem better or faster or more efficiently than the United States of America. That is my, one of my favorite quotes. Winston Churchill, what do you say about Americans? Oh, yeah. We'll always do the right thing after we've done everything else. That's the absolute. <laughs> I am telling you that that could be said every day. So the, the good news about the United States, which I think societally is that we can solve things. The bad news is, is the leadership issue. Okay. Mm -hmm. When you don't have leadership, even though you have innovation, that innovation, if it's not really uh, either uh, universally agreed upon, understood, what you end up having is, is people say, well, as you said, wrong information on the right, wrong information on the left. And then that kind of solidifies position. And that big bulk of the people in the middle are going, what the hell's going on with everybody here? And this is where I keep coming into this divide, which is why I have this common bridge. Let me see if I can articulate this. The polls, the people that are in the political system, think if I muddy up the other guy enough yes, of course. that no one will vote for the other guy, I can do whatever I want to because when I do it, I'll just say, you know, I'm not that guy. Oh, and, and people will mindlessly and blindly follow them instead of saying, hey, yeah, you know what? I voted for you. I support you. I understand you have a tough job, but you know what? You need to follow your own bloody rules, period, full stop. But the good news is, is I think, uh, according to the polls, you tell me if I'm wrong, it's like 40 plus percent now are independent in this country. That is not a bad thing. I would okay? be I would be a wonderful thing if they had a place to go. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, but, but still we have two brands. And and look, and, and you talk about this a lot. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that we have to give we have to demand that for every Ted Cruz, mm. you know, that we get a John Hickenlooper. Right. Yeah. That we get people that have actually done something. Um, and I, a and I Portman. A, a, a Portman. Right. I, and I look at um, what is the political system producing for us in terms of candidates. And so and I've written on this I have paper on my website. Donald Trump wasn't elected because people said, you know what we really need? We need a guy that operates off the seat of his pants, is a megalomaniac, narcissistic doesn't do his homework. That's what we need for president. <laughs> I don't think anybody, I think people said, you know what, what we're getting, we don't want. And we're going to, it's going to be a big middle finger. God bless Joe Biden. He's obviously a man's past his prime. Yeah. I, did anybody say, you, you know what we really need? We need an aging guy who has trouble. Aging white guy. Uh, aging white guy. Yeah, who's, who's has trouble articulating who's being controlled by somebody because he says, well, I'm not supposed to talk to you. It's like, well, did anybody said we want that? No, but what, what they said was, well, we're, we're done with the Trump thing. Yeah. And, and so there, there has to be a better answer. And, and what you see happening, though, is that, look, governing's hard. You can't make everyone happy and you can't be an expert. And, and a lot of the bureaucracies move of their own accord. They do what they want to do. But someplace out there, there's a governor, a business person, an academic that is preparing to be a leader. 
that you could look and I don't expect them to be a saint either. Okay. I'm not asking who they've had in their bedroom for the rest of their whole life. Don't yeah. care. Yeah. I want to know if you can do a job. We're going to hire an executive to run the country. Yeah. And, and think about it. And you've hired executives. I've hired executives. Yeah. If we were on the search committee of a company and the executive recruiter brought us the slate of candidates, they brought us for president of late. Michael Bloomberg, that's who I would have chosen. Yeah, right. Well, we, we may, can we, run a company. He can run a city. Uh, he can exactly. run a country. And, and look, look what he was brought down on. Yeah. Uh, on what did the political system They decided to target him. Exactly. But we would have looked at the slate of candidates and said, you know, no, go back and get us more candidates. You know, when you, you talk about this, and I'm going to mention about Michael Bloomberg, because this is one of my pet peeves, that Elizabeth Warren made it her uh, goal to destroy him. And she did. Yeah. And so we got uh, Joe Biden instead. All right. Now, if you want to talk about somebody who could run a, a country uh, efficiently and fairly, and this is a guy who's on the right wing, but put his money were on a lot of left wing things. Sure. Right. So but not good enough. OK. Never good enough for the left wing, because by God, you know, he looked at somebody crosswise, you know, 20 years ago kind of thing. But if you ask me about a candidate who that. And he's not a great speaker, okay? He kind of mumbles his way through things. But I can imagine that guy in a boardroom. I can imagine him, you know, running New York City, which is incredibly difficult, right? And he did it, and he picked it up right after, you know, Rudy Rudy was gone at three months after 9-11. The guy who rebuilt uh, uh, New York was Michael Bloomberg. He kept the business guys there. He kept everybody else there. He made sure that things worked. Did he have his kind of a stop and frisk moment? Nobody's perfect, okay? He apologized for certain things, right? Which was really a, actually a bad thing. But on the other hand, <clears throat> if you want, never mind the, who, he's, who slept with who, people make mistakes. What I like about Michael Bloomberg, if you ask me for a perfect candidate, that's a very, about as close as we're going to get. We're not going to get, I don't want another career politician, I don't want somebody who sat there in Washington. That's why Donald Trump was elected, in my view. They're tired. People on the right were tired of career uh, career politicians, and they were tired of electing people that didn't do what they said they were going to do. So, yeah, he got elected. Well, he didn't do what anybody wanted to do. Well, I'm, but, not, I'm not opposed to someone that maybe have had a career in politics, like if they know they show they can run a government. Jerry Brown, who I disagree with on a lot of policy things, but there's no question Jerry Brown knows how to run a government. He's like, knows how to get decisions bubbled up. He knows how to cut through the crap. And, 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 and get pretty low-key, you know. And very low-key. Another, another guy that I thought did a great job in Michigan, Rick Snyder. Rick yeah. Snyder didn't take credit, didn't assign blame. He just worked. And, it, you know, he Rick would, be, would have been a good guy to hire, but he just didn't have the charisma to go national. What about a Larry Hogan? Uh, Larry Hogan, I like what I see in Hogan from Maryland. Then he asked the question, could they get through the primary season? And that's where I think we're falling down as a nation, is that to your yeah. earlier point, who's going to rally the great middle versus giving us a choice of this extreme or that extreme? But we've got to get through this next four years yeah. of President Biden and, and uh, God bless him and hope that his health holds out. Yes. That he's going to be tested. That's a, a topic that I think you and I should get into because China has tested our presidents. If, if uh, memory serves me correctly, uh, when George W. Bush was elected, 
that's when the spy plane was flying close to our aircraft and downed a Chinese pilot who, who died. Barack Obama came into office and they were playing chicken with our carriers in the South China Sea and kind of testing the mettle of Barack Obama. Yeah. And then Trump gets elected. <laughs> Maybe they're a little afraid of what he might have done. I don't remember them pressing him directly, but in your experience in China, which is extensive, yeah. and I hope people go back and listen to the prior podcasts and such, is China going to press President Biden and where might they press him? Well, my view on China is that it's been a long time coming about the U.S. understanding uh, what is China's ultimate goal. And the U.S. had the luxury of outsourcing millions of jobs uh, because we could, right? Uh, and the U.S. invested in China. Other countries invested in China. Hong Kong Chinese big time invested in China. So China was built up. Now everybody gets it. It's not like we've been asleep, right? Um, as you said, Bush, Obama did the famous pivot. Obama did the TPP, which Trump said no. Trump initially started off with he and he could understand Xi Jinping because he likes those kind of autocratic guys. Then he realized, you know, this was not working at all. Pandemic, it went off the rails. Pompeo comes in. Pompeo, as you know, I am a supporter of the Pompeo encirclement. Uh, and where we come in with Biden, essentially what Biden was handed was actually a pretty good deck. Biden was given the encirclement strategy, which Pompeo was absolutely adamant about. And I believe personally that uh, Pompeo was the architect of the China strategy, not Trump. Trump is too hit and miss uh, with his yes with the no Huawei, yes with, you know, then no TikTok, but then no deal happened with Oracle, on and on. Uh, Trump's too erratic. But Pompeo is consistent. So he hands it off to Blinken. Blinken and Biden, too. So Biden goes to Europe. I think Biden did the right thing completely. He got his team on side. So whether you like Biden or not, the arm in arm with Macron, that's a good thing. If Boris Johnson, if you recall, he made uh, Biden made a couple lame jokes and Boris Johnson said, I will agree with anything the president says. Because they were like relieved that somebody was going to work with them as opposed to say, I'm doing what I'm going to do, America first. So Biden did the right thing with all of that kind of, kind of stuff. So that was good. Then Biden got everybody to send their ships to the South China Sea. So there's, for the first time in 80 years, there's a German military frigate going through up and down. The, the British sent a fleet with U.S. airplanes, by the way, on their carrier to the South China Sea going up and down the Straits of Taiwan. So, and uh, Japan was brought into it. Korea's brought into it. Australia's been down there like holding the bag saying, we've been getting beat up by the Chinese forever. They're like not buying our wine. They're not buying this. They're like telling us they're going to, you know, whack us all the time. They have... They've been holding the fort, but they were good. New Zealand's weak, by the way, very weak. Jacinda Ardern is the absolute worst thing for the Western alliance, by the way. She is an apologist who does not have a clue about China. And she's like back to the Barack Obama, if I hug people enough, you know, they're going to, you know, everybody will love us, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. So where we are with China, I think right now on a general level, there's two ways that uh, are, things are happening in the world. One Xi Jinping speaks to a domestic audience. He does not care about the world. Now, he's got his 
propagandists and avatars out everywhere saying, well, we can line up 120 votes against Israel. Well, you know, you could line up 120 votes against Israel, you know, because that's the way that the politics have gone against Israel for a long period of time. So that's irrelevant. But he's really talking to a domestic audience. 100 years, China, CCP, Communist Party. Remember the big, uh, about a month and a half ago, two months ago, they did the big parade. And he was saying, well, you know, China will uh, bash people's heads with steel and blood. You know, he's playing the kind of Mao card, but that's an internal. Biden is playing to an internal audience, not very successfully. Okay. But he's playing to a global audience, which is look at those guys and we need to be strong. Now, now you know what's really interesting, Robert, yeah. if I just interject? Until we sat down, I didn't know that the Germans and the Japanese and the Brits, the Koreans, had flexed military muscle there. And so that's a fascinating thing. And, and again, it's, I think it's a good win for the Biden administration, a good win for America. And it built on the previous administration. And think of how unifying had Secretary Blinken or President Biden come out and said, look, we made progress with China over the last four years, and now we're going to advance that. How great that would have been to say, look, the country is in, in good hands. And look, in recent days now, I've heard soundings from many people on the left, particularly around chips, saying, wow, we really should be manufacturing in the United States. And it's like, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like Trump's America first. And Trump did get a lot of the factories, particularly in Southeast Michigan, going again. Is there a difference? There's got to be. The only difference between, oh, first of all, that's exactly what Trump said. And that's exactly what Biden said. There's only one difference on that is Biden's put more money in it. Okay. Okay. So Biden, as you know, um, has got his two and a half percent of GDP uh, initiative, which is matching the Kennedy-esque uh, go to the moon thing, right, that he's putting into technology. So the difference between Trump and Biden on that is not is not a policy. It's of Biden's put more money uh, behind it to reshore uh, as opposed to just waiting for the primarily the uh, private sector. Trump supported it, but not not in the Biden way. And that's basically because Trump doesn't believe in the government putting money into that. Biden is an old style. He's not a FDR guy. He's not an LBJ, LBJ guy. He's really a Kennedy guy. He's been a centrist his career. Has he done some things? Has he gotten wealthy that we really can't see how that happened? You know, sometimes powerful people get involved in powerful things. He has been seen as a centrist. And particularly if you look at his early campaigns, he's kind of what you'd want out of a candidate. He's like, look, I just want to introduce myself tell you what I'm about. And if you like it, vote for me. If you don't vote for the other guy, it's like, okay, I'm good with that. And I think where America and perhaps the world's holding their breath is how robust and how healthy is he? That's where. Yeah. Okay. We, so you're getting to the core point. I only wanted to answer the thing about uh, the, Trump. Trump it, okay. It's it's 90% the same. There has been no change on tariffs. Mm -hmm. Okay. No change on uh, any of the uh, strategy, except even stronger by getting all the partners involved. Okay. So where we are now is, is what is Biden going to do for his second act? So Biden's going to get through uh, whatever legislation, regardless of AOC and the rest of these guys, he's, they're going to get the 1.225 bipartisan infrastructure across. Uh, they will get something less to 2.5 trillion on the cornucopia of <laughs> yeah. left wing, save the world stuff. Right. Some of it's going to be a continuation, as you know, of the 1.9 trillion 
uh, the family benefit program, mm-hmm. that stuff. Some of it's going to be wish list. They'll get something across. Then after that, what is he going to do, really? Because he's going to lose, in my view, he's going to lose the House next year. Um, the progressives are hell-bent for leather on losing. They absolutely are, you know, determined to lose, right, by being so, you know, strident and giving all the talking points to right-wing media. So they're going to lose. I think Biden actually will hold the Senate. Uh, there's a couple in there. I'm sure you've looked at the numbers out of the 10 vulnerable ones. He'll get 51, 49, 52, 48. So that's my my feeling. Okay. Let, let me react a little bit because it opens up another topic that I've been following quite closely. First of all, I'm not confident that the Republicans will take the House in 2022, just on the simple basis that their ability to really screw things up is monumental. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and they can do it in, in, in the uh, primaries. Uh, secondly, there's a lot of redistricting going on That's right now. Guy. And there, you know, there's been, I think, good noble attempts to try to uh, cut back on the gerrymandering. And in some places, it's an arm wrestling between that well, gerrymandering. some nonpartisan stuff now. Yeah. Committees. Here's the big thing that I think is a, a threat to the republic. There are voting laws that are being put through mm. that are all being captioned as voter suppression. Well, I've read several of them. And they're not voter suppression, right? They are codifying things, okay? If you remember in 2018, Stacey Abrams said she's the governor of Georgia. Ballot system's all wrong. I think she still says she's governor of Georgia. In 2018, also, Hillary Clinton said Donald Trump's an illegitimate president. In 2020, Hillary Clinton told Joe Biden, never concede. In 2020, of course, Donald Trump said, the vote in Georgia is no good. I really won. I really won Arizona. But to quote former Attorney General Barr, it's all bullshit. (laughs) It did lose. But now you're the Georgia legislature, for example, and you put laws in place for the pandemic. Say, all right, we're now going to codify how much early voting is there, how many Sundays are there, how many drop boxes are there, and so forth. And they codify all that. And they're much more liberal and open than Michigan, New York, Delaware, etc. But now you have both the federal government suing and then Mark Elias, who Perkins Coy, famous for Christopher Steele, he and 35 lawyers just left Perkins Coy setting up a firm to sue states on voting laws. So first question, who's funding that? But secondly, this is getting set up. I'm, Not George oh, Soros. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lord, no, it's, it's, it ain't cheap. All right, let me put it like that. And it He's ain't, paid for everything. I forgot his yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it's getting paid for someplace. But here, I'm kind of, it's a long way around to get into the point was, what I believe or fear could happen in 2022, mm. regardless of the outcome, the loser is going to say the election was no good. Mm. If it's the Democrats losing, they're going to say, oh, it was all voter suppression. And that those talking points are going to get picked up in the echo chamber and people aren't going to understand what's actually in that legislation. They're going to say we should have passed the quote for the People Act, which I've read. If you read it as a I data guy. Went through that. Yeah, yeah it, it is designed to have corrupt voter rolls. It's 2,800 pages. It's not that big. <laughs> and, and the other thing that's really interesting, they call out like that social media platforms like, well, that's the new town hall and that's what we're going to use. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, they allow those companies to censor people. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible approach to this. Mm-hmm. 
But in any case, we t- just to come back a long way, way to get to, to get to the central point, I fear that if we can't agree as a country on the rules of what makes a fair election, by definition, the loser is going to claim it wasn't fair. I'll answer that in, in two parts. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't think I agree with you with what you're saying. I don't think that the so-called voter suppression, it's different by state, okay? Mm-hmm. Not every, not any, everything is equal. But anyway, um, I don't think the voter suppression is nearly as severe as the left portrays it. I, I agree with you. I think the real history, uh, issue is gerrymandering, okay? Mm-hmm. If you look at, as an example, uh, Texas, Texas got two seats. 90% or more of the increase in population that got Texas those two seats are brown and black people. They got no new seats, those, those, those two groups. They all went to rejiggered uh, uh, districts, which will make sure that white people stay in power. Now, I'm a white guy. I, but at the same time, my view is uh, the people moving to Texas, they need to be represented, and they need to be represented fairly. And the only way that you can do that, now that the Supreme Court said gerrymandering is Actually, extreme gerrymandering is acceptable unless it's racially based, as you know that. So the bottom line here is that uh, gerrymandering is, I believe, the real subject. If you ended up having gerrymandering at a nonpartisan basis or bipartisan, whatever you want to say, you can, they're still going to argue, right? But it won't be extreme. So let's just say in Texas, one of those seats would go to some Latino area that's gotten larger, which, by the way, could also be Republican. As you know, sure. down at the Rio Grande, they voted Republican, right? And the other one went to, let's say, suburban Dallas for all that, you know, matters. That's acceptable. But what we have here is this, the gerrymandering to me is the most, it's obscured by the argument about um, the, the, the voter suppression. To answer your question, though, every both sides are already building in, I lost because... Now, I'm not going to blame that on Trump, but Trump weaponized the uh, in advance losing that I didn't lose. And as much as Hillary may have said something or, you know, Stacey being the goofball, I still heard her on TV. Well, you know, I didn't. You know, she's a minor figure in this. Uh, Hillary is just a sore loser. Uh, And, you know, she conceded on the on the night of the election. But since then, she's had, you know, loser's regret kind of thing. Trump, though, has learned how to weaponize this. And I think this is a critical point, the, uh, which we have not gotten to, and I don't know if we have time, but the Republican Party has an, a problem, which is while the left has got the AOCs and all those people, eventually they all end up listening to Pelosi and Biden somehow mollifies them, right? But on the right, you have people that say, I can't get elected unless I make Donald Trump or his supporters happy. That is not a good thing for the Republican Party. In in my view, I have maybe 60% of my values are Republican. I call them Nelson Rockefeller uh, values, okay? They don't exist anymore, all right, kind of thing. And maybe 40% of my views are on the left side. I am, as an example, I don't agree with the latest numbers that just came out today, which uh, saying, oh, well, the states that cut off the UI benefits did not have a, a spike in employment. They did. It may not be, you know, big enough for the left because they want more benefits. But, you know, at the same time is that was true. I know people that have been sitting, I know personally people 
anecdotal, sitting on the sidelines who said, well, I might as well let the UI thing go to it to the end. And in the last month, they've been getting serious about getting their resume out there because they know it's coming to an end. They also know that rent control, you know, the rent abatement is, is coming to an end, moratorium. So everyone's getting serious about going back to work, whether, you know, the politics match or not. So in my view, at the end of the day, the Republican Party somehow has got to come back toward the center. And the left has got to try to keep, you know, the loudmouths, including MSNBC, you know, say, hey, man, you don't represent us. And this is the real problem. The Democrats do not actually say, and I'm going to put this out there, folks, 61% of the voters for uh, Joe Biden were white. 61%. Yes, 39% were not white, but 61% were white. Do you hear anything about in the uh, Democratic Party about any kind of thing about help the working class whites? No. Well, it comes down to, you know, uh, I have a joke in there about Sorry, Joe Biden. No, 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 no problem. Because you know what I liked about what you just did? A guy with your vigor making that case as like a president of the Democrat Party would be like it'd be a good thing. And that's, I think, where, where everybody's holding their breath is that we just don't have a vigorous man as, as no. president and right now. the backup now. is very suspect. Indeed. But I also want to say this. I believe Trump has got such massive personal problems that we were probably lucky to survive. We were fortunate he was defeated. I think he should have been impeached, if not prosecuted, around everything that led up to January 6th, because it was not a one-day thing. He was. It was months in advance undermining the process. Yeah. If he really loved the country, he could have said, I served... I tried as hard as I could, and I'm going to be waiting at the White House to greet new president coming in. He mm. didn't do any of those things. The Republican Party is dead if they don't throw Donald Trump off the bus. And there have been a couple of glimmers of Trump-supported candidate in some of these odd elections mm. losing. And I think people need to be bold and say, you know what? Thank you for your service, sir. You meant well. You're yesterday's news. And I know is that happening in your view? I don't think so. I don't think it's happening. But when you wind the clock back into 16, I said the only good thing about Donald Trump getting nominated, would it would blow up the establishment of the Republican Party. Hmm. And the only good thing about him getting elected would be it would blow up the establishment of the Democratic Party. Well, it turns out he did blow up the establishment of the Republican Party, but the Democrats still elected two, or still nominated two, and then elected two very establishment candidates. So to your point that Biden's trying to find that, that center ground and such. But Trump's done his thing. He needs to leave the playing field. And in the vernacular, STFU, which yeah. I think he's incapable of doing. And the last thing I'll say about this is that Trump never expanded his appeal. He never did anything to reach out and say, look, you didn't vote for me, but let me explain to you why I'm serving you. He just got narrower and narrower and narrower. We just have to leave him behind. Are people dumb enough to elect this guy? Because based on Afghanistan, now they're saying, well, Trump pulling ahead of Biden. And I, I shudder because that just encourages Trump to try again. Well, there's there's two points there. First of all, with um, Trump, um, I think Trump was uh, brilliant, uh, and his team was even more brilliant at mining every vote in his segment. Um, people would laugh when he'd fly into Erie, Pennsylvania, 
you know. But if he had 70%, he left with 90% of the vote. He flew into Bullhead City in Arizona. I'll never forget that, which is near the, the Nevada-Vegas border. And that, you know, magnificent plane in the middle of the desert and people waiting for him. If he had 70%, he had 100 after that. So he got every vote. On top of that, his team was fabulous. If you listen to his team versus the ding-dongs on the Biden team, which we're talking all kinds of rubbish, you know, well, we like this, wah, wah, wah. These, they were like, we went door to door. We knocked on the door. We came back the next day. We got him in the car. We got him to vote. Trump was great, and his team was even better at mining every one of those votes. Obviously, that was not enough. Okay. Well, he told people don't vote by mail. Yeah. At like the, well, that, that was a that was like a bonehead move. Yeah, like okay. it was. He so. But his team was good. You have to. Admit, oh, his, his team, team was, was his team was outstanding. Um, the, the the issue is that when you're a, a a guy like Trump, you need really competent people behind you to pick up the pieces. And and despite what. You know, people have different opinions on Mike Pence, but if Mike Pence would have ascended to the Oval Office, knows how to run a government, knows how yeah. to meet people, you know, part way and such. Kind of today, I think when people start thinking about things like the 25th Amendment, they're looking at, at who's in the next chair and they're going, no, no it's not uh, a good idea. But remember, we had a successful situation like this 48 years ago when Spiro Agnew was removed from the Yeah, but vice- Spiro was... Um, you know, if you read about it, he was incredibly corrupt. Oh, yeah. Proven. Okay. Yeah, right. I mean, he right. took bags of cash. You know? <laughs> Spiro yeah. was not a... You know, no, no, what I'm saying is that yeah. nobody wanted him to be president, but they, no. took, they took... But Gerald came in, yeah, our right. guy. The point is, is that Ford was an acceptable guy by the right, by the left. He was in second chair when they pressured Nixon to resign. So and the answer to this is, if, if the Republicans want uh, the 25th Amendment or some way for him to step down, you've got to first deal with Kamala. And and Kamala right now is not effective, to say the least, but so far they haven't found anything that I know of that's significant on her other than, you know, how she got to the top. And that's, you know, that's that's, that's that's personal. Which is, which which frankly I think is bullshit. You know, it's a 28-year-old woman acting like a 28-year-old woman and they're trying to criminalize it is, is like, that, that but, to me, but, that's just not fair. But let's agree on, uh, because I watch her, and I'm sure you do too, and Kamala Harris is not a great representative uh, for the United States. She has a way of not meeting the moment almost every single time, whether she's got the offhand remark or, um, but she's just not very effective. So that is a problem. Uh, if they had chosen, as an example, maybe chose Val Demings, Okay, somebody with a strong kind of you know police background. I like Val Demings. I like Val a lot. What I've seen of her. Marco's got a problem. Okay, he's not going to you know blow her out. Mark, you know she's running against Marco. Yeah, um, but she's got yeah. She was former police chief. Yeah, Um, she's well spoken. She's she's uh, got a calm, real serious, very serious demeanor. Yeah, and and that's what I'm saying about leadership in in the country is that. I think people would breathe a sigh of relief if they had, let's say, a choice between Val Demings and Nikki Haley. And they, they both have their detractors, yeah. but they're both of the age and of the intellect and of the experience to to do a, a, a good job. But if, if my point about Val Demings is this, is if she were in there, 
there may there might be a way to get uh, Biden to retire, okay? But he won't retire. Um, nobody wants him to retire. No, the Democrats, Republicans, Independents, nobody wants him. To They're retire. sitting there like going, "Man, I don't want to deal with Kamala." Because- but maybe she, you know, and let's let's go. Maybe Kamala can, can be prepared to be ready if if she's the kind of person that's coachable. Have you seen the progress so far? I haven't. No, but on the other hand, you've got to remember everything we get is filtered. And so we don't know what she does day to day. Yeah. And and I think that the president did put her in a couple of positions to fail. Let me ask you, I bet you, if I asked you how to fix the southern border, you'd have come up with a way better solution than she did. Maybe. But okay. Yeah. And infrastructure. I am just telling you, she is, she is a lightweight intellectual. Okay, that is not up to the mark. Now, Joe, when he did that, look at the Joe solution that he did for Obama. He actually had a solid solution. If Trump had followed through with that, he might not have had to be as tough as he was, which is essentially, I'm sorry to say it, a Peace Corps solution, right? You got to keep people in the village. You got to keep people, you know, you you cannot make it that everybody is looking north and saying, if I send my kid up there, I'm going to get a McMansion back here or I'm going to live in a hovel. That's my two choices. Well, guess what? The McMansion is inappropriate. The hovel is a loser. Is there something in between? There you go. This marks the end of part one of episode one of season three of The Common Bridge. Join us next week as we conclude the interview with Robert Greenfield. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy.